Welcome everyone. So I just would like to um, welcome everyone here on behalf of the CPD subcommittee of the Short-Term Insurance Committee. So this is our second sessional. As you remember, the first one was, was, was about quiz one. So we felt it would, would be appropriate to make the second one about quiz two. And actually, it's, um, I think it's, uh, the timing is quite good because it's, it's just as, as the quiz two templates are coming out, uh, it would be useful to, to understand what the changes were, what recalibration were, and, and what the process was around, um, around doing that. So we are very privileged today to have uh, Eugene van der Westhuizen. He chairs the, um, the non-life underwriting uh, risk working group. That's uh, part of the capital requirements task group. And they were tasked to look at the recalibration of the premium and reserve factors, as well as the CAT factors, so the man-made as well as um, natural catastrophic uh, factors and, and, and parameters. So, um, so Eugene will, will take us through some insights as to, as to what the process has been, also what the new factors are. And then following that, we also have uh, CSS Raisin. He will talk about um, how, how one can get the most out of, out of filling in the Quiz 2 spreadsheet. Really, what, what is the benefits we can get out of, um, out of, out of participating in this process? So without um, further ado, I will hand over to Eugene. Thank you, Jock. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome also from my side. Yeah, I was very happy to, to learn that this is just a voice recording and not a video recording as, as well, because I had already planned to apologize for, for the camera adding uh, 10 to 15 pounds in winter, and also for it not really picking up all my hair. So that's my disclaimer, that's now no longer <laughs> required. So on my agenda today is an e a short introduction. Then I'll look at uh, the various components of the non-life underwriting risk module of the standard formula, and then also consider a few um, next steps. So as Jacques said, the non-life underwriting risk working group was formed uh, under the capital requirements task group, and specifically to look at the uh, structure and the calibration of the non-life underwriting risk uh, component of the standard formula, under SAM, of course. So for uh, quiz one, we largely followed the, the solvency two quiz five structure and parameters, with the exception of the main exception being the natural catastrophe um, risk submodule, where a, an updated calibration or, or more appropriate calibration was done for, uh, for the industry. The plan was then to revisit this uh, for quiz two, so to do uh, a more appropriate calibration. And with this in mind, uh, the FSB sent out a, a data request to industry, to the short-term insurance industry, at the end of October 2011, with the deadline uh, for submissions being end of November 2011. This data request uh, related specifically to, to the non-life underwriting risk. So there's various components of, of this uh, module. The first component relates to the premium and reserve risk. Now the plan was to base the recalibration on various methods as detailed um, in CEOPS's uh, level two advice on the calibration of non-life underwriting risk and uh, also looking at the refined methods as, as described in the report of IOPAS uh, joint working group on non-life and health um, non-similar to life techniques. These methods are largely based on earned premiums per origin period and also on um, annual paid or reported incurred claims triangles. There's roughly uh, four premium risk methods and uh, eight reserve risk uh, calibration methods. Now the idea would have also been to uh, then go into those de uh, methods in, in a bit more detail in today's presentation, 
but uh, there, there were a number of limitations in, in doing this calibration. Uh, the first is that um, generally the short-term insurance industry haven't in the past uh, reserved using actuarial methods. So companies typically um, calculated IBNR on a 7% of net written premium basis, which means that, that we don't have uh, historical um, claim reserve uh, development data. Now, this is not a, such a big problem because we can uh, retrospectively calculate what, what the IBNRs should have been. So, so that problem was um, overcome, in theory at least. Uh, the second limitation was the number of submissions. We received um, data from around 21 companies and per line of business um, the most we could get from the data was uh, triangles for, for about six or seven companies. Uh, for some classes of business um, only for two or three companies or if, if at all. And the last uh, problem was that the quality of information was extremely poor. Some of those triangles had one or two data points and so you had to remove that from the calibration. So we maybe ended up with, we ended up with uh, perhaps two or three triangles at, at most uh, per line of business that, that could be used uh, um, in the calibration. That, that's clearly not, not enough information. The volatility in, in or the range of, of estimates that, that we got from, from this process was massive, if not hash ref or zero. So we decided that, that we couldn't really uh, do a recalibration for Quest2 based on uh, South African industry data. So what we uh, decided to look at instead was the, um, the factors that, that were recommended by the joint working, working group in, in their report. And there's a summary of, of their recommendations. Recommendations were made only on, on these lines of business, not on non-proportional reinsurance business. The, the first and the third columns show the, the Quiz 5 standard deviations for premium and reserve risk. And the second and fourth columns show the, um, the recommended, uh, um, as they say, Quiz 6 factors. Um, IOPAS uh, recommendation or the working group's recommendation. And as you can see um, in, in most segments, the recommendation was to significantly reduce the, uh, the volatility factors for both premium and reserve risk. Uh, for two of those segments, um, a recalibration wasn't possible um, due to lack of data. Um, and, and I guess there they'll, um, they'll fall back on the Quiz 5 factors. So this shows a mapping of our uh, SAM Quiz 2 segments to the segments the IOPA segments that, that we used. For example, for both motor personal lines and commercial lines, uh, we decided to base the factors on the motor own damage or, or, uh, or the other motor segment, purely because the, um, the motor third-party liability segment in Europe has a large component of bodily injury claims, and that's not really that, that relevant in South Africa. For engineering, we based it on the fire and property segment, because in in Europe, they don't distinguish between uh, engineering and other property. For crop, we uh, base that on miscellaneous and also for miscellaneous other. And then uh, we decided to, to add a, a line of business for miscellaneous uh, terrorism. And, and the idea is to uh, specifically look at, uh, at terrorism risk and more specifically the risk written by, by SASRIA. So to rather exclude that from, from the property and motor segments um, and, and deal with it separately. What we also decided to, to do for Quiz 2 was to revisit the, the volume measure definition and the issue is more directly re related to uh, reinsurance business where 
triangles, uh, runoff triangles are usually grouped on an underwriting year basis, not an accident year basis, which means that the uh, reserve risk methods that, that you use would be uh, inappropriate if, if applied to a volume measure as, as a total, um, as, as, as only a claims provision uh, when looking at reserve risk. So, so what we decided to do there instead was to, um, to consider the, the full uh, reserve estimate uh, from, from an underwriting year basis if your reserving methodology is uh, on an underwriting year basis or an accident year basis if, yeah, uh, which is similar to, to what was used for quiz one. Also, uh, an issue that we're trying to address is with contract recognition or contract boundaries. Again, this being more relevant for uh, reinsurance companies, for example, where, where the next year's renewals uh, would already have been signed uh, prior to the financial year end and thus being included in, a, um, in, in the technical provisions. And so increasing, significantly increasing the, the volume measure for, for reserve risk. So, so we decided to, to exclude that and, and define that, that more appropriately. Uh, possible further changes for for quiz two, if we um, if we find time to to look at that, would be to to calibrate the inward reinsurance uh, factors and and also to better calibrate the terrorism factors. Um, if if you remember from the previous slide, those were those are currently based on the um, marine aviation and transport segment factors, but we do have some data there, so so we can uh, do a more appropriate calibration. Right next, we look at uh, the natural catastrophe risk. The catastrophe sub-working group was formed in January 2011. The initial scope uh, for this working group was to, to look at the natural catastrophe and the man-made catastrophe components of, of the standard formula, uh, specifically um, the non-life underwriting risk uh, CAT components. Thus far, however, um, this working group has, has only considered the natural catastrophe uh, risk. Man-made catastrophes were considered in, in other working groups. So ideally, the calibration would be based on natural catastrophe models that at least allow for a detailed event set that uh, considers exposure per zone and line of business and that delivers an output per event, year, zone and line of business. Uh, but unfortunately, in, in South Africa, we have very limited availability of, 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 of those, those types of models. The formula for quiz one, this is a brief summary of, of our how it was structured, and specifically method one. We looked at four perils, those being earthquake, flood, hail, and storm. For each of those perils, a one in 200 year event uh, loss damage ratio was, was determined. Then we allowed for, for different exposures in different cresta zones, and now that, that could differ between the companies. Um, there was limited allowance for different exposures per line of business. Multiple events were allowed for by applying factors of, of this 200 year event. Uh, risk mitigation was, was then allowed for per peril and then aggregated across perils. It was decided this, that this methodology is not appropriate for South Africa and, and that it typically overestimates the, the required capital. So a number of changes are proposed for Quiz 2. First is that uh, um, we've uh, rezoned South Africa. So we consider it in a bit more detail. Some of the uh, Cresta zones were, were broken up in, in, in more zones. A different horizontal and vertical uh, risk allowance is being made and uh, more explicit. There's a more explicit allowance for different lines of business. So looking at the vertical risk and uh, just for, for those of you who are not familiar with this uh, term, this considers the, the risk of one or, or exposed to, to one large event. Um, so that is typica typically your 200-year your event that, that's considered here. 
for vertical risk, we decided to focus on peak perils, um, so no longer look at the four perils. We identified earthquake as the peak peril for non-motor property and hail as the peak peril for motor property. A similar approach is used to, to the Quiz 1 structure to calculate those 200-year uh, those event losses, but those losses were, or those, those parameters were, were recalibrated um, based on industry exposure information that, that we received at the end of 2011. Uh, the maximum of, the, of these two numbers are used, uh, is used, and, um, and we then allow for, for risk mitigation. Then considering horizontal risk, and this is the risk of a large number of smaller events happening in the same year. The reason why we need to consider vertical risk and horizontal risk differently or separately is because reinsurance uh, structures would, would cover those, those types of events in, in a different way. So while the company might purchase enough reinsurance to, to cover the, the largest foreseeable event, they might not purchase enough cover at the lower ends to, to cover them against a, a large number of smaller risks or events happening in the same year. So various, uh, um, for the horizontal risk, all perils are combined, which makes it easier in terms of definition of, of different perils. Various scenarios of con are considered of multiple events, for example, one 20-year event and two 10-year events happening in the same year, or three 20-year events, or whatever the case may be. For each of those scenarios, uh, re the risk mitigation structure uh, is applied, and the maximum over these different uh, scenarios is, is then taken. The overall natural catastrophe charge net of risk mitigation would then be the maximum of this horizontal and vertical assessment. So going into a bit more detail on how the uh, calibration for, for earthquake risk worked, 50,000 years were simulated and the output was, was produced per uh, segment which uh, considers zones and lines of business and per loss event. From this we determined the overall 1 in 200 year uh, loss damage ratio, and that being the 250th highest loss divided by total exposure. Uh, we also determined the, the average contribution per segment to the overall loss in a range around this, uh, this 200 year uh, percentile. And, and specifically, we looked at uh, a range of the 150th to the 350th highest losses. The segment relativity, if you think back of, of the of the formula there's uh, on, on the, to this, how the standard formula works, there's there, there were zone relativities. We just now call it segment relativities. That would then be calculated as the average contribution divided by the rele relevant exposure for that segment, divided by the overall loss damage ratio. And then aggregation factors are determined to aggregate all of this together by solving uh, this formula, that one and uh, these are capped between 0 and 1. A similar approach was used to, to calibrate the, um, the hail risk, but here we focused on zones 5, 6 and 7, which is uh, Pretoria, Johannesburg and the East Rand, um, because we think that's, um, that's where the only other significant um, risk in South Africa lies when compared to, to the earthquake risk. The reason why we need to consider hail separate from earthquake for most companies, we believe the, the earthquake risk to be the, the peak risk, but some companies might only be exposed to, to motor risk, and for those companies, you, you then need to consider a, an event that, that could need, lead to significantly higher losses than, than earthquake. 
being hailed. So to calibrate the more frequent events, we'll make use of expert judgment. And those factors will, will at first be based on, on assumed uh, shape curves and the uh, quiz one parameters. But, but we realize that this is uh, not near accurate enough. And, and so we need to relook at this, this for quiz three. So for man-made catastrophe risk, workshops were held with uh, various industry experts. And those were per man-made scenario, so per line of business. And uh, in these workshops, we discussed with the experts the appropriateness of the solvency to uh, formula. So the approach, the scenario, and the parameters. In SAM uh, quiz two, we then allowed for the recommended changes to those scenarios. We haven't had enough time to, to calibrate those, those parameters. Um, so that's also something that's outstanding for, for quiz three. But what we wanted to do is uh, test this, the new structure and and receive industry um, a comment on, on that. So this is a summary of some of the main changes. It's not an exhaustive list. We've added a, a fire agri event. In fire other, we removed the option one under the quiz one uh, formula. And that was the, the one relating to 150 meter radius. We had to get your maximum exposure in, a, in that radius. Under the motor scenario, we, uh, we removed exposure to personal lines because we don't consider that, that to be a significant risk in South Africa, specifically because we don't have uh, bodily injury risk. For marine, um, a different scenario was defined, specifically a collision between two container carriers. Uh, for credit and surety ship, where a different approach for, to determine the recessionary loss will be used, uh, specifically a loss ratio approach. And that's uh, similar to what's been suggested uh, in Europe. Uh, for aviation, again, a different scenario, and there we consider a mid-air collision of two aircraft. Under liability, uh, we're proposing a slightly different segmentation. And as mentioned, uh, for terrorism, we're uh, we con we considering the, the complete terrorism risk that, uh, that SASRIA is exposed to. Uh, the calibration is, is based on, on, on their experience. And any other company with uh, exposure to, to this risk uh, would have to follow that, that calibration. So uh, next steps. Uh, for Quiz 2, within the non-life underwriting risk module, we would further like to allow for an overall risk mitigation, such as uh, what exists under stop-loss arrangement. And then uh, counterparty default risk is something that um, I, I'm not sure if it's been considered. The counterparty default risk component has been moved into the market risk component, and, and I think it was expected for, for the underwriting risk portion of, of that default risk um, to be allowed for in the underwriting risk components, but that hasn't been considered. And then um, next steps uh, after quiz two, pre-quiz three, hopefully, a new data request will be sent out, and um, this will be compulsory as the industry left us with no choice but to do this. And that will be, the deadline for, for submission will be shortly after quiz two. So the idea is that uh, um, companies should use similar data to what they use for um, completing quiz two to complete this data request. And then following that, a detailed calibration of, of all the non-life underwriting risk components. And that's it from my side. Should be um, first given opportunity for questions. 
thanks for that, Eugene, for all the work and all the effort. Yeah, I know you do this without pay, so um, I'm sure a few of us will take you for lunch sometime. A quick question. I haven't in my spare time had time to read that joint working group report from, from IOPA, but I'm assuming that you know, they couldn't do everything by the numbers. So they would have to incorporate expert judgment. Could you just elaborate on how they did that and, and how you plan to do the same on your side? And they received a lot more data than, than we'll ever receive. They, um, they received data from close to 300 companies, if, if I remember clearly, Jock. So they, they had the freedom um, to firstly exclude um, data from companies that, that um, looked dodgy. And then they, they cleaned the data quite a bit also. So, so they used uh, expert judgment to go through the triangles, remove outliers, things like that. They applied a range of different methods uh, to determine um, different estimates for both the premium and reserve risk for, for each of the lines of business. For each of those, they, they could then do a goodness of fit test, um, also because they, they had 300 data points. So, so that with three data points, you can't do a goodness of fit test. Or QQ plot just looks weird. So based on, on that analysis, they, they could then exclude uh, certain methods for certain lines of business. So not the same methods were considered for or chosen for all the lines of business. And in the end, they, they used uh, some sort of average uh, between the estimates from, from various methods. So we'll need to see what, what will be possible for, for us. Uh, what we're planning on doing is, uh, when we send out the new data request, is to build in a few validation data vali validation checks. So the, the spreadsheet will, um, will give an error message if something looks dodgy. Uh, for example, entering negative uh, cumulative claim amounts or a few random cells being populated or um, it looking like incremental while it should be cumulative. Uh, things like that. So just a few basic checks um, initially, and and then the working group will have to uh, come together and and go through all the submissions and see what we want to exclude or include. We'll also consider uh, submissions that that has a significant impact on the overall result. So so derive estimates including and excluding different companies, and for those that have a significant uh, impact on on the final result, uh, we'll have to consider whether it's appropriate to include or exclude those. Just to follow on from that, so, so um, and I accept you, you with three data points you snook, it doesn't matter how you look at it, but especially on the, for example, on the, on the earthquake or on the hail stuff, you, you need assumptions on the, on the observed, um, and, and sometimes you will not have enough data there for the hail to see the observed, call it hazard rate or damage ratios that you do see. So in, in, in Europe, have they used expert judgment to, to calibrate those inside the modeling? Or was the observed incidence rates completely the rates that drove the model? And, and similarly for South Africa, even if you get perfect data, given the, the youngness of our industry, I'm not sure you'll have enough observed incidence rates to, to actually drive your model. So you would have to revert to some experts or, or guys out there, whether the Weather Bureau or guys that do work in, in, in CAT um, or in rather than Quake. So, so is that in your plans as well or do you hope to send out the data request, pull out the big stick and make sure there's enough data? Sorry, so my previous answer more related to premium reserve risk. For natural catastrophe risk, we don't look at historical information, we look at exposure information. That's at least for, for the 200 year scenario. Those are based on um, CAT modeling companies' uh, models. So, so they have models looking at or, or 
being driven by, by event sets. So for example, earthquake, they'll sample an earthquake event of a certain magnitude happening at a certain location and then apply that to the exposure information. So in that case, it's, it's not really based on, on the industry's historic loss information, uh, but, but rather on, on, on those CAT models. In Europe, it, uh, a similar process was followed, uh, the difference just being that there's more vendors. So uh, while in South Africa we have one or two models to base this on, in Europe they had many more uh, to base that on and probably based on a, a longer history of, of, of uh, fitting those models. The, the problem really comes then in with uh, calibrating the, um, the more frequent events because that's not where the focus has been. So, so there we would need to um, look at historic information, historic loss information. And so hopefully we'll get enough information from the industry to, to get a feel for what a 10-year or a 20-year event looks like. What will also help is that, uh, that we're combining all perils. So yeah, we don't need to try and estimate the 20-year earthquake event and the 20-year hail event and the 20-year, just the 20-year over, overall 20-year event. And, and there, a lot of expert judgment will have to, will have to go in, into, into that calibration. On the um, man-made catastrophes, it depends on what line you're looking at. So if you're looking at uh, something like marine or aviation where a scenario is defined, that's pretty much uh, based on expert judgment as to what the appropriate scenario is. When you consider something like the fire risk where uh, factors have to be calibrated, then it will be based on, on insurance companies' information and hopefully we'll have more information to, to calibrate that than natural catastrophes. But again, you'll probably have to apply some expert judgment to that. Just to belabor the data quality point a little bit more, making it compulsory to provide data is clearly not going to improve the quality of the data. Uh, so, so to expand on that point. Just to, uh, well, I guess it's unfair to ask you the question, but is the FSB going to consider looking at some form of assurance on the data from the companies providing the data? So whether it's from um, the auditor or internal audit or something like that. Just on making it compulsory, we'll again ask companies to, to provide us with the percentage of their triangles that they think is accurate. What will be compulsory is for companies to, to at least submit something. So a large insurance company that, that is going for an internal model application or that's, that's going to apply for their internal models to, to be used can't then submit no data because it just doesn't make sense where uh, in the previous submission we didn't receive data from a number of large companies. So, so the first, first idea of, of making this compulsory is to, to force companies to at least say, well, we've got accurate data for 50% of our portfolio or for 10% or for 90%. So if a company doesn't have accurate information, then, then they're welcome to submit a blank spreadsheet. Then secondly, on, on the validation, We'll also, through Quiz 2, ask companies to, to send us their data that, that, that was used in calculating technical provisions and uh, data from the data uh, request can then be validated against that. Thirdly, we'll ask companies to, to indicate who's completed uh, the data templates, um, whether it was a senior actuary or an actuary or an actuarial student or an accountant or an <laughs> IT manager. So, so hopefully that will give us enough information to, if, if a, a certain triangle seems a bit dodgy and it was completed by someone that's 
not necessarily doesn't have the expertise to complete that, but just didn't care, then, then we can exclude that. Easy, easy one. Um, is there a recalibration report, or is there plans to have one for Quest 3? Uh, there will definitely be one for Quest 3, and a short report will, um, will be written on Quest 2. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Eugene. Okay, maybe first off, this presentation is not about how to do your calc to get a lower capital. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, taking a step back from the Quest 2 calculation, uh, making sure that you consider the other aspects, uh, and trying to extract as much of this, because we know it takes a lot of resources to actually do it. Okay, so, so Quest 2, I know all of you guys have read the specs, you're pretty keen on starting, but it's important to realize it's uh, part of a bigger picture, and yeah, we shouldn't forget that. Okay, so maybe in, in line with what is going on in Europe in terms of uh, sovereign debt, let's start off with a, a little story, I think, in terms of creating value or extracting value. So the, the, the German guy goes to uh, Greece and he, he's on a business trip and he wants to go and stay in a hotel. And he gets the receptionist, says, no, it's 100 euros a night. He says, sure, I'll, I'll pay the 100 euros, but I want to go and see what, what the room looked like, looked like before I, before I uh, stay. And he pays 100 euros, goes to the elevator, goes up. The manager gra grabs the 100 euros, runs down the, the road to the butcher, pays his debt to the butcher. The butcher takes the 100 euros, runs down to the food, food store and pays his debt. The, the grocer manager takes his, the 100 euros and goes and pays the locksmith his debt. And the locksmith runs to the hotel and pays his debt at the hotel. So just as the locksmith leaves the hotel, the German guy comes down the, uh, the elevator, takes his 100 euros, says he doesn't like the room, puts a 100 uh, euro note in his pocket, walks out. Uh, so yeah, all debts paid, no value created. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, so why should you m make an effort to complete Quiz 2? Uh, the opportunity assessing the capital requirements uh, either from the current interim measures or Quiz 1 if you did complete Quiz 1. Uh, identify capital inefficiency, potential solutions for those items, m be it a class of business, uh, asset type. Identify shortcomings where in future, uh, in the, under the quiz one, where you maybe you, you took some shortcuts, identifying those ones and, and making a, bit, a better effort. And obviously, uh, if, if there's some items in the, the standard formula that you would rather want to go for in partial and internal model, they would also highlight it. And then, obviously, life goes on. Um, new products need to, to go to market, and it would also provide some tools to, to do those checks. Uh, but I know, obviously, all of you guys don't need to be convinced to do Quiz 2, because uh, I guess you're here to understand what it is about. Uh, but I think it's key to keep these considerations in, in the back of your mind when you're doing uh, Quiz 2, to make sure that this is actually what the objective is, what you want to achieve. Um, so instead of just completing it and submitting it to the, to the regulator, to keep these in mind. So first off, let's think, think around taking control of the data, leveraging year-end processes. I, I would assume most insurance companies did it as at their, their year-end, but no, I mean not as at what the, the date the regulator required it. You used your own, your own year-end date. But that, that also means if your year-end hasn't passed yet um, and it's still coming up, in that year-end process, make sure that you think around Quiz 2 already. Make sure that when you start extracting data for your year-end validation, that that data requirements would take into account what you'll require for Quiz 2. Um, yeah, as I said, identify the simplifications that, would use for, that was used in Quiz 1. 
be it because uh, you didn't know how to calculate it the other way or time pressures or data. And this time around, make an effort to actually do that calculation uh, uh, more in detail because obviously, you know, after quiz three, there's, there's no more tries. So uh, the, the sooner the better. Uh, yeah, and obviously we know where a lot of companies are struggling is the, the non-CAT or the CAT risk sub-module in terms of getting that exposure data and doing the calculations. So starting to focusing on that from the start uh, and not starting with the easy ones uh, would also be beneficial. Okay, so if we start thinking around going beyond the, the numbers, currently companies find it difficult to assess what the impact of SAM would be under um, any new developments, any business consideration that need to be done. Uh, obviously the reason is there's a little spreadsheet lying somewhere that and actually did the, and it's a single value, it might be nine, nine months old. So you can't really do that to uh, inform ma uh, management decisions. So when you design the tool, keep in mind that it would be helpful if it's possible to do some scenario analysis with it um, in terms of um, informing management if they've got certain strategies that they want to test that the tool can at least give them a high, a high level indication of what the capital implication would be under, under SAM. Okay, so the, when, when SAM comes in 2015, obviously it, it means that uh, the company will need to do this whole calculation on a, let's say, either a quarterly or maybe a monthly basis. That would require you to have the full process in place and having everything in line so that you can actually make those, those deadlines. So I would just re recommend start designing and testing those processes now already, be it either beforehand start thinking it through and then testing it while you're doing quiz two, or while you're doing quiz two, start developing those, those processes, setting out uh, which, what, what is the responsibilities to which departments, putting those guys in, because it means they start getting involved in the quiz two, pro uh, in the, the SAM process as well. So they need to learn. You can't uh, do quiz three and then after quiz three expect the rest of the, the firm to understand what's happening what needs to happen so if you if you guys are struggling to concentrate just remember there's some snacks waiting uh, and obviously uh, most likely there are going to be some areas which you need to uh, take a shortcut or make a high level estimate where either with time or data uh, but just make a note of that and um, that you know on the quiz three it's something that you can focus on and then just lastly obviously we're not pretty keen on delving into Pillar 2, but it's, it's there and it's not going to go away. So thinking of drafting and testing certain policies and documentation that would be required that slots into your, your Pillar 1 calculations, be it reserving procedures, data governance, data policies, data specs that you provide to your, your asset managers. Um, start designing those now and then test them during you doing Quest 2 or, as I said, during Quest 2 you develop them. So yes, that's it. Short and sweet. <laughs> you guys are welcome to add anything to that list or questions. Obviously. Yeah, you, you pulled a shy audience today, yes. <laughs> um, I love the iceberg. I, I hope it's not symbolic of things to come. Maybe just you know something that I thought of that, that is quite useful. When you do the quiz, um, it actually requires it in a technical spec, is to try and do a reconciliation to what you currently report. Um, and explain that to management. So I think the, the very important thing from the quiz two results before you submit it, it has to be signed off, is that presentation you do to your senior management. That is essentially your springboard to help you with the change management without going into the correlation matrices. I think that's the place where you can, can use the quiz to, to help your change management process at the top. 
And if you can't change the top, the rest won't follow. So, so I think that's another one I think I'd like to add on there. Yeah. No, I agree. So it's actually for Eugene. I just want to know if there's an indication of the timelines of the data spec. Uh, just keep in mind about the group stuff that has to go in on the 5th of November. Yeah, roughly we, uh, we thought of making it a month or two after, after quiz two, uh, the Quiz 2 submission deadline. But I guess we then will then make it after group submission. Um okay, and the other thing is there's no possibility of sending out the spec before Quiz 2. We'll uh, send out the spec probably sometime in July. Sorry, maybe just to, to talk to that one, but also to the Quiz 2 spec. I mean, uh, Saia will be running workshops when it comes to the data spec for non-life as well, just in terms of what's expected and how it will, how it will run and sort of how to maximize or minimize effort, I suppose, in terms of, of completing that. But in terms of Quiz 2, something just to add, maybe not something that will help you extract value, but will help you complete quiz, is that uh, rumor has it that uh, the FSB will be hosting some workshops for, for quiz two. So look out for invites, I think, coming out towards the end of July. There's going to be three in Joburg, I think, and one in, one in Cape Town. So, so it'll just help, especially if there's any, and hopefully there are some, some first-timers doing quiz. Uh, the idea of the workshops is just to take people through the basics of it and, and, and sort of, you know, with between a 400-page text spec and uh, a several several worksheet workbook um, to kind of just take people through where to start and, and where to consider simplifications and things like that. So hopefully that'll help people as well. Any more questions? No? Okay. So let's just uh, thank CS as well for his uh, presentation.